You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome back to The Worship Review, a podcast where we critically examine the texts of music that's being sung in the church. My name is Tyler. I am a linguist and PhD student, and I'm joined as ever by Colin. Hi, I'm Colin. I'm a historian and a former worship leader, as Tyler was as well. Indeed. And we have a small but committed following to this podcast, and we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that your following is not for us, but for the principle of thinking critically about the words that we sing to God in worship. In the second series, we've looked at hymns that have been redone in recent years by contemporary Christian musicians as they are often sung in the church. And today we're taking a look at a little bit different of a song. It is not a hymn in and of itself. It is based on an ancient creed of the Christian church. Which very well may have been sung. Certainly. It very well may have been sung, uh, and it certainly is sung in the Hillsong version of this called This I Believe, in parentheses, Creed. This I Believe, The Creed. Oh, is it The Creed? I thought yeah. it was just Creed. Not the not the rock band. Not the rock band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a really popular song. Uh, about 50 million views on YouTube. That's a lot of views. I recommend also that listeners check out the the main video that's on YouTube. I say this just because the uh, the atmosphere and ambiance. Did you watch the video, Tyler? With like the the big like Foo Fighters style stage. Huge. Yeah. This isn't the. I'm. Th- am I thinking of one? Where it's a stadium setting, and yeah. they're all around them in every direction. Yeah, and there are like these lights along the stage. It looks like the Foo Fighters had a stage like this in their uh, their Wembley performances a few years ago. And I was actually watching this with my kids, not the, not the Foo Fighters, but um, this, this Hillsong video. And uh, I, when I told my children that this was a, like a worship service, my children didn't believe me. <laughs> really? Like, they were like, no, this isn't. This is, that is not. I was like, yeah, it is. Like my, my youngest son who's six is like, that's a concert. I'm like, no, this, this is a, that's a worship band. That's church music. And they. He said that. Yeah, he said yeah. that's a concert? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But well, uh, folks should watch the video. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. You are kind of expecting a stage dive at the end that never comes, yeah. unfortunately. I mean, or like a Super Bowl halftime show, it kind of looks like. I mean, it doesn't have all of the, you know, weird dancers and choreographed dancers. Running through a maze. Right, yeah. (laughs) So Colin, before we jump into the text of this song, would you like to discuss some general summarizing remarks about it? Yeah, there's not much to say in summary before we get into the text. This is a song which is a series of declarations of belief, much like the Apostles' Creed. It declares belief in a triune God. It speaks about what Christ did. It does not tell us why Christ did what he did. And there are certainly some aspects, if you compare it to the original Apostles' Creed, that are left out. But on the whole, it, it makes several key statements about, 
yeah, God being triune, the resurrection, it makes statements about Christ being our judge, it talks about Christ suffering and being crucified, it seems to make a statement about an offer of forgiveness that's related to that, possibly. Yeah, I was curious about the origins of this song, and like many of Hillsong's texts, you can read about the origins for yeah, they, the song. they post this on their website sometimes, don't they? Yes. And so if you go to Hillsong Music's website and look at this song, you can read what inspired them to put, the, put these words to music, and it was actually a tweet. Someone tweeted them and said, could you please put the words of this creed to music? And the authors of this song said, sure, we'll have a go. And that was the impetus for this song. I thought perhaps before we get into the text of this interpretation and addition, if you can call it an addition, of the creed, we might read the creed itself. Yeah, that's a great idea. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Colin, would you like to jump into this text of This I Believe? Sure, let's do it. Our Father everlasting, the all-creating one, God Almighty, through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior. Yeah, this is a really pithy way to, right at the get-go, identify the persons of the Trinity and their roles or aspects of their roles. So we have the Father being everlasting and sort of creating. We then have the, mecha- the Holy Spirit acting as a, a mechanism for the conception of the Son. And then we have the identity of the Son as Jesus, our Savior. So a very clear biblical, as far as I can tell. I don't see any objection here with the way that this is put together. It seems pretty straightforward and pretty clear. Very good. Do you have any thoughts? There were some things that were ambiguous to me, so maybe you can help me understand these. This opening line, our Father everlasting, if we were looking at the text of the Creed, we are saying, I believe in the God, the Father Almighty. Mm. And, you know, that definite article in English, typically if we say God, the Father, we're referring to his role as the first member of the Trinity and the Father of Christ. And in this version of the song, we have God, our Father, Mm -hmm. which... As you said, it's a biblical line, but it's different from what was there. It emphasizes a different sense in which God is Father. Yeah, it references the uh, the Lord's Prayer more than it does the Apostles' Creed, mm-hmm. which you know, perfectly, perfectly fine. Yeah, in a way. Although it does, it's interesting that the first line being "Our Father" kind of sets up maybe unintentionally in our minds a more prayerful approach to this song rather than a 
creedal approach, which you know, in the in the kind of Hillsong setting, that kind of makes sense. Where there's a lot, there, there's a bit more emotion, instrumentation, uh, you know, other affectations. So maybe maybe there's a desire to have a more mystical ish aspect, although that's putting a lot of weight on a single article. It does stand in contrast to the idea of a creed being a declaration, where the power of the creed is in the content of the ideas being uttered and not the passion with which I say it. They're really, creeds are really for us. Creeds are ways for us to summarize and to state and to remind ourselves of what we believe things things we believe about god things we believe about the church etc so when we say a creed i think we're doing a worshipful thing but it's not a direct address to god when we say a creed right if anything it's before men yeah it really is it's kind of a horiz- it's a yeah it's a horizontal thing right? That, that, to me. Whereas prayer is a vertical thing. Prayer is addressing God, petitioning God, speaking to God, listening to God, etc. Our Father is used here, especially with the reference to the Lord's Prayer. It does have an effect of setting up what's happening as a vertical thing, as an act of worship in the way that I think many evangelicals would interpret worship, that is, in the context of singing music, of singing songs, in a worship service or in a in a church service or something like that. Yeah, and you you said that creeds are for us and you left out the definition of us. So I'm assuming you mean Christians who have faith yes. in Christ and yes. theology that strives to be accurate yes. and biblical for the church. Right. And I wonder if if creeds are also this is still for the church, but I wonder if creeds are also useful for demarcating, for differentiating. You can imagine, well, not just you can imagine, Christian sects and schisms have happened oh, sure. over the words of creeds. Yeah. Um, th- these are powerful things that we're saying here. And f- to us, it is music to our ears, it is comforting, it's reassuring. But if, you're, if you are a, a Jew or a Gentile who was raised in a very different faith, saying these words for the first time could make you an outcast of your family. Yeah. It would drastically change your worldview about God and what faith is. Yeah, that's an important point because, you know, even the Nicene Creed comes out of a context in which, you know, there are there are a couple of different controversies that are that are being addressed by that creed in in the early fourth century AD as Christianity is emerging out of the politically incorrect realm of religion and being brought into the politically correct realm of religion, then, you know, suddenly the church and the state, they decide to wrestle with orthodoxy. And so the Nicene Creed comes out of that wrestling, that attempt to decide who actually, who gets brought into the kind of this new public Christianity and who should be left out of it. And so, yeah, the the creedal statement, some of the earliest creeds, are very much about delineating who's in and who's out as well. Like, can you say these words and do you believe what these words are? You're in. If you can't say these words or don't believe them, then you're out. So I think very fair point that you bring up. And from the perspective of the world, I'm certain that saying a creed could put you under a death sentence yeah. somewhere 
um, now as well as yeah. two thousand years ago. Um, Absolutely. So, you 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 uh, if you stand up and say these words in certain parts of the Middle East, uh, you might get someone throwing rocks at you. I wanted to talk about this change of creator of heaven and earth to the all creating one, and I'd kind of like to couch this in uh, in an observation about this first verse, and that is that there is no active verb. Yeah. We we see God the Father. We might be tempted to think that's the subject, but He is the object of an address, just like in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father everlasting, the All Creating One, God Almighty. We have three different descriptions of Him, and then through Your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior. You might be tempted to think conceiving is an active verb there, but it's not because it is not in the it's not in the active voice. It doesn't have. It, it's not. Um, you have conceived or you did conceive. It's a present participle conceiving, as is the all creating. It's a present participle of that verb, which is used to create a an agent noun, or mm-hmm. people who study this call it a nomen agentis from Latin. But it's interesting to me that there is no actual um, active verb, because it means that there is no statement of action indicated grammatically. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are statements of action hinted at. If you call someone the all-creating one, you are hinting at the fact that they have created everything. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you say, um, conceiving Christ the Son, you are indicating that they have conceived Christ the Son. Okay, why is this important? It's important because this first verse has a lot of fragmented but biblical addresses of God without a statement of action in the sentence. And this is in, this is in, I'm not just saying this because I am picky about grammar. This is in stark contrast to a creed. The first verb, the first word of this creed in Latin is an indicative verb with a first person singular ending on it. Credo. Right. I I believe. believe. In this, like you said, it reads more like a prayer. We are addressing God and we give him a long list of names and descriptions of what he has done. But without actually ascribing to him action through a verb or or what? Or without actually... uh... Without specifying why we're saying what we're saying. Because with all of these different forms of address to God, the second half of this sentence, which is implicated because there is no active verb yet, you're waiting for it to come, could be, I believe in you. It could be, I praise you. It could be, my heart is broken right now and I really need you. There, mm-hmm. There is no context, no linguistic context and no, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for. These forms of address are not couched in a clear context why we're saying what we're saying. Mm. Maybe that's a little bit too picky of I, me. But I know, I don't think it is. I think you answered the question why that's important. It 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 keeps the it keeps the aesthetics of the creed, but it really is doing something already a little bit different than a creed would be doing. It's kind of taking away these clear sentences and statements. It's turned those into an address and it's done so in a way which changes the grammar to make these statements and images seem a bit more difficult to grasp by having by not having even definitive grammar it it even the language is a bit ethereal hmm. in a way i i think what you've I, I think what you've observed is a lot you know is really important it's way more than just 
grammar. And, you know, you see this in a lot of contemporary Christian songs where, where the sentences are incomplete or there aren't verbs. And here we're kind of seeing, so it's hard to analyze those because we don't see the verbs. We don't see, there's not an original text that is being changed. It's just that these are what the songs that people write and then they produce them. Whereas what we're seeing is the way that a band like Hillsong take a set of clear statements, creedal statements with clear grammar and how they adapt them. And they we're seeing that one of the things that they're doing purposefully is changing the grammar and changing the syntax. Mm-hmm. Like that's a that's a choice that they've made. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, I'm not saying there aren't verbs here. There are yeah. verbal roots that have been turned into present participles or maybe gerunds, but there is no um, there's no active verb. And here's a good example. Let's say we take the the line conceiving Christ the Son. You might be tempted to think this is an active verb. We have ing suffixes on verbs that are used in active context in the present tense all the time in English, but they they are preceded by the verb to be, a conjugated form of that verb, and that is called the present progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, he is going means he is currently in the process of going, mm-hmm. and without that active verb to be conjugated for person and number, this sentence con- or this. This idea, conceiving Christ the Son, becomes a bit ambiguous. And here's what I mean. If we compare it to the creed, qui conceptus est de spiritu sancto, it's referring to Christ, who was or is, it literally is conceived by or of the Holy Spirit. Mm. That's a very clear description of Christ. Um, Conceiving Christ the Son is vague enough that it's not clear if God the Father is the agent causing the conception or the Holy Spirit is the agent causing the conception. It's true. And in Luke, Mary is told, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be overshadowed by the power of the Most High. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, that implies more that the Holy Spirit is the agent mm-hmm. of the conception. And in Latin, um, conceptus est de Spiritu Sancto. Spiritu Sancto is in the ablative, mm-hmm. and Dei takes the ablative case, but yeah. often when you have a, uh, and, and Colin, you know Latin better than I do, but when you have a verb that is um, constructed in this way, it's called the agent ablative. Right. So if you have a verb like this, conceptus, conceived, and then you have an ablative construction with a noun in it afterward, it implies that that is the agent yep. of the action. Clearly identifies the agent, absolutely, by the Holy Spirit. And so English lacks that grammatical construction, but we have many other ways that we yeah. could have explained who did this conceiving. Yeah. yeah. So that's just a concrete example of how loose grammar leads to loose morals. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just how how uh, specific language is not to be tossed away carelessly. There are consequences to that. And also how grammar can create a kind of mood. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But I I would affirm wholeheartedly with you, this is a Trinitarian praise to God. I believe in God, 
Our Father, I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again, for I believe in the name of Jesus. I'm really glad that you made the comments you made earlier about the grammar, because here we see the contrast. Here we do see active verbs. Credo, I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe. Like tons of active verbs. Our God is, right? The verb to be, active form. I believe uh, in the resurrection that we will, we will rise again. I believe. And then, so all of these are state sentences. These are all complete sentences. Boom, 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 boom. This makes me think that Hillsong know what they're doing when they adjust the grammar and syntax of the verses. I think somebody on their team or a producer, whoever it is that helps them or whoever it is that writes the music, knows, is, is trying to create a mood in those verses, a kind of a kind of unease. We understand grammar intuitively in, in many respects. Some of my undergraduate papers would, would throw that into question, but on the whole, we, we, we think about grammar. And so I think in the verses... It just the the slightly incomplete or unclear sentences create a sense of unease. That's why these choruses with clear, uh, complete sentences come across with some power and with some resolution. They they, they give us they, they sort of relieve us of the unease that we were feeling in the chorus. I think that's being done on purpose. Do you remember what I said earlier, Colin, about how if you if you address something and then you don't have an active verb. It creates a kind of anticipation for that yeah. active verb to come. Yeah. I think I wholeheartedly agree with you. What we see here is an anticipation built through that first verse that is resolved with these strong, independent clauses at the opening of this chorus. We have in the, in the first four lines of the chorus, four different independent clauses. I believe in God, our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. Boom, 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 boom. And then the second half of that has a, uh, some clauses that are built on uh, cause and effect. Um, yeah, I, I think you may be onto something there about them intentionally doing this. Because like I said, if you, if you do this address thing with all the present participles, if, if I came to you and said, Colin, professor of history, writer of books, stander on soapboxes, you would say, well, out with it. What are you trying to <laughs> yeah, say? Right. Like, can you, can you, Give me an active verb to work yeah. with here. Um, it builds a kind of anticipation. Yeah. It's used a lot in praise poetry, too. It's used a lot in, uh, what's the right word for this? T- titulature, it, right? It's, it's, it's sort of, um, it's oh, anticipating. Email signatures. Well, yeah, it's, it's anticipating. So like if you have a statement from a Roman em- emperor, all of these titles are given in this way. And what you're doing is you're like, wow, 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 wow. What's, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? What's he going to say? And then you get the, the statement, whatever it is, right? And the statement has these, is in complete sentences. Mm-hmm. So it, it does the same thing. And we see it in Pauline letters as sure. well, right? Like That's Paul, a ser- bondservant right. of Christ Jesus, right. apostle to the right. Gentiles. Greetings in the name of our Lord. Right. You just feel it resolve right. there. Yeah. So, so they're doing this on purpose. Uh, the other thing I'll just mention about this uh, it's a great chorus in terms of content. It's phenomenal. The use here, the use of our Father here uh, and our God is not direct address this time. And the way that we can see that is because it's just describing uh, that God is our Father. It's not. It's not addressing God, our Father. Whereas in the first verse, we have the the second person 
uh, the second person through your Holy Spirit. So we know that our Father is an address, whereas here, this is just descriptive. This is just who God is. He is the Father of us. It's kind of genitive rather than or possessive. Yeah. Yeah. Those two aren't entirely indistinguishable in English, at least in historical English. Yeah. Um, I was curious, again, about this use of God, our Father, as opposed to God, the Father, because, you know, Christ is called the Son. Mm -hmm. Um, But I won't hit that again, because I've already hit that. Another interesting thing about this course, especially the second half, I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again. Now, that that introduces a new clause, and it's meant to extrapolate on the first clause. So, the resurrection that I believe in here is that we will rise again. Right. Right? And certainly, we would all affirm that, and certainly that's in the creed. Um, But the creed has, I believe, in the resurrection of the body, and it also has a description of Christ's resurrection. And those are distinct entities there. Whereas here, this course seems to clearly emphasize one of them. Um, the resurrection of Christ will be mentioned in a later verse, but yeah. it is it is absent from that belief in the resurrection. Yeah, that's right. Um, so then the other thing that's interesting here is the mechanism by which this we will rise again happens. It You have this conjunction for, for I believe in the name of Jesus, which implies that the reason we will rise again is because of believing in the name of Jesus. I, th- I think that's brilliant, actually. Yeah, I mean, fine. Yeah. If you confess with your mouth that yeah. Jesus Christ is Lord, and you believe yeah. in your heart that he rose from the grave, then you shall be saved. Um, although, again, that the, the, the part about believing in your heart that he rose from the grave is not what is said in the second half of this chorus, right? I, and I think, I, I think I remember from their description of how the song came to be, they were inspired a little bit by that verse. Mm-hmm. Um, but the belief in the resurrection in this course, like I said, is clearly meant to be our resurrection and not Christ's resurrection. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing, so I, yeah, I agree with you that it's fine to say, I, for I believe in the name of Jesus, the apostles, when they perform miracles in the book of Acts, are often doing so in the name of Jesus, like I command you in the name of Jesus, etc. That can sound a bit, there are ways in which that idea has turned into magic in some uh, corners of the church, for sure. So you know we we don't affirm that, but there's that's not what's going on here. I don't think. I think this is just a a way of of asserting something that's biblical. Yes, although you have interpreted it one way, and I think it's a valid interpretation. The we will rise again for I believe, but I think given the subject of the second clause, I, and the sentence immediately preceding this, I believe in the resurrection, that the for may actually better be suited for the cause being the belief in the resurrection. Oh, that the that we, we will rise again is almost like a... It's an extrapolation like a, okay. on the resurrection. Okay. It, the, it could be better bracketed. I believe in the resurrection, for I believe in the name of Jesus. I see. Okay, the second verse, our judge and our defender mm-hmm. suffered and crucified. Forgiveness is in you. I really like the this sort of first line, our judge and our defender. Uh, the reason I like, now we don't know the more of the context of judgment and being like defended from what, being judged for what, by what. 
So there's not an expansion on what those words mean, but a Christian certainly could reasonably extrapolate from this the idea that we're being judged for our sin, but also being defended from the judgment for our sin. This really encapsulates something that many Christians don't always come to grips with, which is when we are saved, when we are saved as Christians from the consequences of our sin, the penalty of our sin, we're also, like, we're being saved from God as well. Like, we are being saved from the wrath of God, the just and right anger of God against us, against our sin. So, this is a nice line in terms of just capturing that we're under the judgment of God, but that God himself, in Christ, actually saves us from God himself. <laughs> and him being the defender, I thought, was quite scriptural as well. Obviously, the judge, too. Yeah, the judge being is— the defender— Sorry, yeah, the judge is scriptural. We see that in uh, Romans 2, verse 15 through 16. Uh, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when— According to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So Christ is, he will judge. Uh, or 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So yeah, that's there. And then, yeah, you were going to say the defender is there as well. Absolutely. Psalm 59 tells us that the Lord is our fortress and our hiding place. And some, some translate fortress there as an active defending agent. So, I would say this is quite scriptural, this praise, although the first verse was addressing God the Father, and unless you take the ending of the chorus, which is, for I believe in the name of Jesus, to imply a shift in who we're addressing, this first line of the second verse is a little bit out of place until the second half of it. So, our judge and our defender is not clearly Christ until we see the next line, suffered and crucified, where we know who our judge and our defender is. Yeah, that's true. Um, I did find the uh, end of this verse a bit, uh, I don't know, maybe just less than clear, because mm -hmm. there's this forgiveness is in you. What do we need forgiveness from? Uh, and what does forgiveness is in you mean? Does that mean it's it's found in you? Is this, uh, it's just a, it's a slightly obtuse way of getting at what I imagine most Christians could probably pull out of this but it just makes us work a little bit. Again, it creates some maybe subtle unease that we might even be aware of to say forgiveness is in you without really spelling it out. Yeah, it's it's vague enough that it could be that forgiveness has already been accomplished and granted to us in him, or it could be he's holding forgiveness in him and all you need to do is, is approach him and you can get it. Right. So it could be an evangelistic forgiveness is in you. Um, I think there are po other possible nefarious interpretations that I don't think yeah, are intended, nor do I think most people would extrapolate them. But the point is, it is a, your brain, when you read something like that, I think your brain just kind of subconsciously is kind of just, again, is at unease a little bit mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just because of the grammar. Mm -hmm. Not because of the grammar, because of the ambiguity of it. Forgiveness is in you. Like, well, so too is the turkey that I had for dinner. Turkey is in me. Like it's a weird way of saying it. It is a strange way of saying it. Yes. Like you could say we receive forgiveness in you or something like that, but it's just forgiveness is in you. Hmm. And by the way, we are back to direct address here. Yes. Also. Finally, we have a pronoun to know. Yeah. I mean, yes, we we have been in direct address for 
this whole second verse, but we have a pronoun to really clarify that here. The second person pronoun, you. Well, we had that in the first verse too. Did your we? Yeah. Um, uh, through your Holy Spirit. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, very good. I agree with what you said about forgiveness, it not being clear where it came from, why it was necessary, what was being forgiven. And it's also not clear who is being forgiven, other than that this verse opens with our. Mm -hmm. So I guess our forgiveness is in Christ, which is is true. In the Apostles' Creed, we do have a statement about sin, because we have, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. So I I like that so much better, though, because— it's stating a belief in the forgiveness of sins yeah. and not just a an assertion about an abstract ideal forgiveness being yeah. abstractly in Christ. Well, and also, if it's just in Christ, does that mean forgiveness that is applied to us even? Like, maybe Christ is being forgiven, right? Again, I don't think anybody would interpret it that way, but my point is it doesn't limit that from not being an interpretation, is all I'm saying. Why, why make it have these... In, almost infinite, poss- not infinite. Why make it have these multiple possible meanings? Just, just say something more clear, like the Apostles' Creed says. Agreed. Okay. The second half of this verse is descended into darkness. You rose in glorious life, forever seated high. This verse is dealing with the most controversial part of the Apostles' Creed. When you read the Apostles' Creed, you read he descended to the dead. But what's the other version of that, Colin? He descended into hell. Okay. So this is a an ongoing discussion amongst Christians and has been for probably 2000 years. What happened to Christ when he died? Did he die and just die and then he was raised again? When he died, did he go somewhere? Like did he go to hell? Did he go to some other place that may or may not exist? The 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 Jews had a had a concept of of Sheol, the the abode of the dead and Greeks have the concept of Hades, which is very, very similar, um, a place where people await the resurrection. Uh, so there's that. There is there is also just, the, again, just the idea that Christ died, that Hades or Sheol is a sort of euphemism for just being dead. So this is a big sticking point for folks when they say the Apostles' Creed, to the, to the point where there are different, slightly different versions of the Apostles' Creed because of this controversy. Scripture, in some ways, doesn't help because it, it portrays things—it it gives, it gives us some challenging language to deal with. And Tyler, I think you have some of these texts. Yes, Colin. Scripture is also somewhat ambiguous about the location of his soul between his death and his resurrection. So, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4 say, For what I received, what I, Paul, received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So, that clearly sets the timeline, but there's kind of a glaring hole in that, the time between the death and the resurrection. At Pentecost, Peter in describing what happened to Christ, references the words of David, um, Psalm 1610, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, to Sheol, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. So his body didn't decay, and his soul, at at the very least, was not abandoned to Sheol. Uh, And going on in Acts 2, 
Peter says, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, and here we have in Greek, Hades, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Um, the Apostles' Creed has he descended into, and then in Greek, we have katoteros, and in Latin, we have ad inferii, right? Okay, yeah. So, the, the lower regions, the, yeah. the, the inf- we have the word inferior now to refer to something that's yeah. below something else. Um, this, as I mentioned, the Greek version of the Apostles' Creed uses katoteros. This is the same word used in Ephesians 4. And so, I'm going to read from Ephesians 4. Um, but to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Verse 9 says, what does he ascended mean, except that he also descended into katoteros, the lower regions? And so some Bible translations will also say the lower earthly regions. And uh, as I said, Latin in this creed has ad inferos, which is... um, cognate with it's it, a cognate in linguistics is a word that has the same historical origin even though it's become something else it's the same word in a different language as under in english they have the same root and if you're kind of surprised that f and d could have the same origin it it happens between latin and english all the time because of some regular sound changes so um rufus in latin means a red-headed one or a, a yeah. ruddy one uh, english has red Old Norse had to rauder. So that happens all the time. But the point is, um, scripture is not, scripture does not clearly state that he descended into hell. No. Merely that he descended into the lower regions. Yeah. And the creed also says he descended into the lower regions. And because of some desires of the Roman Catholic Church to explain the harrowing of hell, the preaching of the gospel to the saints of generations past, I realize I'm editorializing a bit, but I would argue that the addition of descending into hell is a, is a mechanism for clarifying the Catholic doctrine of the harrowing of hell. Yeah, and, and which, you know, isn't—the harrowing of hell is—the the closest thing you have to a scriptural basis for that is in First Peter chapter 3, where there's discussion of Christ— uh, proclaiming to the spirits in prison, which I think the Catholics would see as the closest thing to a proof text for that. Like you, I take the position of Calvin, which is that Christ basically suffered a hell. Christ endured a kind of suffering, but he didn't. He didn't go to hell. He didn't go to a shale or a or a uh, a Hades. When I first became a Christian, and for my first ten years as a Christian, I went to a so I went to a church where the the pastor did preach that there was a kind of abode of the dead and that this existed up until Jesus died. And then he, when he died, he went and sort of rescued all the people that were waiting there in faith, basically, and then took them to heaven, I guess. And then that, that, uh, that location sort of no longer had relevance, basically. Um, but like you, uh, I... I really don't think, yeah, I, I think Christ died, but he didn't, 
didn't go to hell or to some kind of Hades. Uh, some neo-Calvinist Christians don't even say this line. It's like John Piper, Wayne Grudem. They just, if they recite the Apostles' Creed, they do not say he descended into hell. They do not say that. I did not know that. I do think the Latin and the Greek texts are superior even to most English translations. You could say he descended into the lower regions, implying earth or the grave, and not deal with all of these troubling theological conclusions that you then have to draw from that statement. So all of this, just to circle back to descended into darkness. This is a way that Hillsong can use darkness as a presumably euphemism for death. So they're kind of um, taking a step back and avoiding this whole controversy by just talking about darkness, and we can assume that it means death. In many, many cases, I don't like it when songs use words like darkness as euphemisms for sin. Uh, in, the ca- in this case, I don't mind it as a euphemism for death. Um, I don't know. It does, doesn't bother me too much, but it just sort of brings up the, it just bring, you know, it's just a way of skirting around this controversy, which I don't blame them for skirting around because how, you know, that that's how you get 50 million watches on YouTube by not being particularly doctrinal or dogmatic about things. Mm-hmm. I almost brought up the darkness as sin thing myself because I was thinking this has to be the only time I've heard a modern worship song use darkness to mean the grave and not sin. Um, and unfortunately, because of all those connotations that I draw when I hear darkness in a modern worship song, I assume other people draw, um, it almost implies that Christ descended into sin, which he did not. <laughs> yeah. uh, he descended into yeah. the grave. Yeah. Uh, and then you rose in glorious life forever seated high, which, uh, fine. Uh, you rose in glorious life, a reference to the resurrection, uh, forever seated high you know, Christ ascending to heaven forever at the right hand of the Father. I mean, it doesn't take too much work to draw those inferences from this. Then we have, I believe in you. I believe you rose again. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we have these these declarative statements again, but now they are addresses. And I don't, again, don't mind this, just straight up saying, speaking to Christ now, I believe in you. I believe you rose from the dead. And I believe that instead of you are Lord, just in the third person now, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Fine. Uh, just another way to say the same thing that was said in the in the chorus, but now it's just addressed to Christ specifically. I believe in life eternal. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the saints communion and in your holy church. I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again. Moving on, we have the chorus once again, and then I believe in life eternal, I believe in the virgin birth, I believe in the saints' communion, and in your holy church. Do you have any thoughts about these lines, Colin? Not much. Uh, You can see here that they're trying to get in more of the Apostles' Creed. So these are sentiments there in the Apostles' Creed that are, uh, as far as I can tell, pretty similar. I, I believe in life eternal, believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the communion of the saints, mm-hmm. right? So it's slightly different word orders a little bit, but in context of this song. Yeah, these I have to be works. the closest to the creed in, in the song. Um, do you want to comment on the change of Catholic Church to Holy Church? Because I was thinking of the, the Greek kata holos, meaning of the whole. 
Yeah, it's interesting that they use the word holy instead of <laughs> yes. whole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. W-H-O-L-E. Um, it reminds me of uh, like the third or fourth of the original Batman films where Robin is introduced and uh, Batman and Robin are walking on something near the end of the movie and Robin goes, holy rusted metal, Batman, <laughs> which is a reference back to the even earlier Batman shows in like the 50s or 60s or not 50s, probably like 60s or 70s. And uh, and Batman's like, what, what, what is it? And, and Robin's like, no, no, it's just we're walking on metal with holes in it. It was a reference back to the old Batman TV show, but also a little wordplay. And so I don't think that uh, Hillsong are necessarily doing wordplay here, although they certainly have shown that they know what they're doing when it comes to grammar. Even if it looks like they don't know what they're doing, clearly they do, because they know how to use grammar to set mood. So maybe they are making some little reference to, instead of holy, whole, you know, or instead of whole, really? holy. Really? Yeah, possible. I think they just omitted the word Catholic, right? Cause well, of course. The creed has the, your holy Catholic church. And they're right. like, well, let's just not say Catholic and we'll keep it. Yes. But my, uh, my point is, right, The another way to say Catholic is yeah. whole, right, or universal church. And so it's interesting that they picked holy instead of whole. I see. I see. Right. Now, I don't know if they made that jump because that's, you know, it's a, it's a few steps um, you have to, but. That would be a really clever it would be. bit of wordplay. Yeah. A double entendre on holy. Yeah. Hmm. And then the second half of this verse is, I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again, for I believe in the name of Jesus. Yeah, so this also, like the last time we saw the resurrection, is speaking about the resurrection of believers. Not the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection of believers. But earlier in that in that other chorus, tag, whatever you want to call it, there was, I believe that, uh, I believe you rose again. So we do know that that we have a de- we have a declarative statement of Jesus rising again, and we also have a sense that there will be a resurrection in the future that is to come uh, when Jesus returns. Um, so, yeah, I do like that they have they've actually added some clarity that was absent from the creed, and that mm-hmm. is that the resurrection of the body has a temporal uh, location is at the second coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. I like that addition. Yeah. And again, this um, belief in the resurrection is grounded in belief in the name of Jesus, mm-hmm. as we saw before. Yep. Okay, Colin. So to wrap up, let's discuss the song as a whole—a holy song. <laughs> <laughs> let's take a look at the. Let's take a look at the song from a bird's eye view. Sure. Yeah. Um, so there's a there, there's a I think a good there's a serious attempt to bring the Apostles' Creed into the types of settings that Hillsong songs tend to be sung. I think there's a sincere and a somewhat successful attempt at that. There are some ways in which, which we've talked about, that the Apostles' Creed is made a bit more ethereal and vague in this song, especially in the verses. In the choruses, great. In the verses, it's just slightly vaguer. Um, there are also, though, some big omissions that are just uh, not really there. Uh, so the Descended into Darkness is about the closest we get to the the bits in the Apostles' Creed about dead, buried. Oh, he he died. Was buried. Was crucified, died, and was buried. Yeah. So, I mean, those the Apostles' Creed is just more clear on those issues. The Apostles' Creed is more clear on sin. Sin is not present in the song. 
There's no sin. So we just have a big, just a bunch of missing stuff there, um, which kind of takes away a bit from the seriousness of the cross, you know? Um, so, you know, like so many Hillsong songs, not all of them, but many of them, it's, so it's less a problem with what it says, and I guess more an issue with what is either not there or is just not clear. What do you think, Tyler? Yeah, there was something kind of predictable about the way they changed it, because if you are familiar with their music, you'll ask, what creedal distinctives will they obfuscate, and which ones will they emphasize? And you think, okay, they'll probably obfuscate sin and judgment, and they will emphasize resurrection. And we see resurrection, you know, more than once in this song. Um, and it's our resurrection that we see generally. There's yeah. also the resurrection of Christ when he ascends, yeah. um, but he's not literally said to be resurrected. And I, I think your word emphasis is important. They they do say our judge, and they do again. There's just there there is there there's some reference to those things, but the emphasis isn't there. The emphasis is, as you say, on kind of what happens to us in many respects. But the irony is that when they fail to discuss sin in any detail in this song, they also kind of cheapen the mention of forgiveness as well. Yeah, so forgiveness right. is in you is nowhere near as moving to my mind as the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Do you think that they almost, maybe that's intentional, because if they don't mention sin, they kind of have to obfuscate forgiveness a bit, because they haven't actually indicated the problem whatsoever. But the Apostles' Creed explicitly mentions forgiveness. So maybe they feel like they have to mention forgiveness in some way, but they have to, they just make it this kind of ethereal version. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, to be specific about forgiveness would be to be specific about the need for it, right? Yeah, exactly. But if they put it that way, then they don't have to really, they just kind of leave it up to people. I, the more of these Hillsong songs that we do, and a few other artists as well, the more convinced I am that there is, there is a lot of intentionality in the way that these songs are made vague. I, I, I don't think I'm, I'm, you can almost call this a kind of red pilling, maybe that is happening here, where I'm I'm increasingly less willing to assume that, ah, eh, you know, this is just because you know these people just kind of write these sorts of songs, and it's just a sort of style, and it's just kind of in the culture. It was an they, oversight, maybe. Yeah, exactly. I'm I, I'm increasingly less inclined to believe that, and I'm more inclined to believe that. Either these artists themselves, or again, some producer or some somebody who, especially you know, is making the money on this, is thinking, you know, is 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 doing some deliberate changes to bring about this result. Yeah, possibly. Think about another example with the judgment. Right, Christ is said to be our judge and our defender, which we have said and affirmed is scriptural. But the creed has, from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead, right? So he's not just our defender. He is the judge of all living and all dead. And I have to imagine there are some evangelical Christians who would be offended by the idea of Christ judging all the living and all the dead. So we need to kind of obscure that a little bit. And Mary isn't even mentioned in this either. No, no Mary at all. Okay, Colin, thank you for that conclusion. Would you endorse this song? Um, (laughs) I wouldn't not endorse it, but it's tough for me to say the words that I would endorse it. <laughs> so let me do this in a in a hillsongy way. Um the endorsing song. I don't know. I don't know how to put this in some way that makes it like, you know, 
rather than make a, a creedal statement of, I endorse this song, maybe I should say... Maybe this song is the one that is sung or something. Yeah, this, <laughs> this song, this endorsing song, you could sing this song, but just say the Apostles' Creed. Uh, or there are actually a couple of versions of the Apostles' Creed put to song that are far better. The Gettys have done uh, a song called We Believe, which is almost verbatim the Apostles' Creed. It's pretty good. Um, it's, it's certainly better than this song. Uh, another version that I think is really, really good is far less known than the Gettys' version. It's called Apostles' Creed, and it's by a band called Liturgical Folk. And my wife has it on one of her playlists. And every time it comes on, it I just it's really nice. And it's it's just the Apostles' Creed. And so I encourage people to look that one up on YouTube. So you could do this song, but why? When there are either better versions of the Apostles' Creed put to song or just the Apostles' Creed, right? Because the magic isn't in the music or the lights or the Foo Fighters stage. The magic is in these this creed that we say and we remind ourselves what we believe. What do you think? Yeah, I had similar feelings to you. Um, it's kind of like lukewarm tea where you're, you could drink it, but why not just heat it up? Why not just read the creed in your services if you want creedal distinctives? But Colin, I would not endorse this song okay. precisely for the reason that you laid out. It is better to just read the creed, and there's nothing awful in this song, but it offers nothing that the creed doesn't do better. Okay. Colin, what'd you give this song? I gave this song three out of five songs over five minutes because Hillsong somehow managed to always make sure their songs are more than five minutes. They, it's like seven, eight, six, nine minute songs. So you could read the Apostles' Creed six or seven yes, times. It takes about 50 seconds to a minute and a half to read the Apostles' Creed. Um, and somehow Hillsong have taken a bunch out of it and yet managed to extend the time by about fivefold, yeah, saying less. Again, like my, like my undergraduate student essays, they, they managed to fluff about with all of their words. They probably learned it from me, the wordy. Okay, go ahead, Tyler. What do, you, what do you think? I give it two out of five goes had, because they had a go, and <laughs> that go was had, and it exists now, and it's not extremely objectionable, but it, it doesn't cross the threshold for me okay. for endorsement. All right, well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Worship Review. We appreciate you and look forward to joining you again next week. Take care. You've been listening to the Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.